0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've just wrapped up this series last week in 1 Thessalonians, and we're just going to go right here straight into 2 Thessalonians as a, a short book, and we'll wrap it up here in the next uh, few weeks. And, but... You know, as we jump in it, we're pretty familiar with the story of this church as we spend most of the fall in First Thessalonians. With Silas, that's that name, Silvanus, and with Timothy, Paul on his second missionary journey had uh, begun the work of the ministry amongst the Thessalonians. They had gone there, they had planted the church, they had spent just a very, very short time in that city, and then the usual pattern of ministry for Paul happened, and that's this, that... Uh, the Judaizers in the community rose up against him, and he was forced to leave town. And so he moved on and went to preach in Berea and then on to, to Corinth. And the church in and Thessalonica just continued to, uh, to grow, and it was healthy. We saw that in, the, in that first letter to the Thessalonians. The, 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 the Thessalonian church was a healthy church. It was a model church. It was a church who the testimony of their story had gone out amongst the pro- the provinces. And so as Paul wrote his first letter to them, uh, they were in the midst of persecution as we know. And so uh, to that church he wrote, just talking about the process of maturity, about being born into the kingdom, about learning to, to stand and to walk and to live in the Lord. He talked to them every single person a section of that letter about the return of Christ and living expectantly for the return of Christ. And so God was at work in the midst of the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul's letter to them had been the source of encouragement, but that did not mean this. It did not mean that all of a sudden the persecution, all the troubles came to an end just because Paul sent them a letter. Okay. Yeah, Paul, we're in this process of maturity. Okay. Yes, we get it. Jesus is coming. So does that mean everything is okay? Well, actually, for this church, no. All the problems were not solved. They didn't just disappear. You notice that about following Jesus? I mean, just because uh, we follow Jesus doesn't mean, you know, Christianity is ease. And it's, you know, lollipops and gumdrops and all of these sweet, lovely things. You know, we saw so often in the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church that... What God has promised us is not ease, but he's promised us his presence. Uh, He didn't promise us life without storms. He promised us that he would be with us in the midst of the storm. And so, you know, what do you think happened to the Thessalonians after Paul's first address? Ease? Gumdrops? Lollipops? Uh, Christianity all of a sudden became effortless. And as I was thinking about effortless, I just think of like a figure skater on the ice. Just, oh yes, it's just so easy. The ease. Well, actually, no, that wasn't the case for the Thessalonians. Actually, after Paul's first letter, things for them grew worse. Uh, In terms of persecution and suffering, you know, the element on the stove got cranked up for this crew. And... You know, it began to do some things in the midst of the church. In fact, the church began to think amongst themselves, I think we're living in the midst of the tribulation. I think the tribulation has come to the earth, you know. To make matters worse, we're going to actually see in chapter 2, a letter had actually shown up to the church where someone, it's, it seemed to have been from Paul, but it wasn't. Someone stating that the day of the Lord, remember we talked about First Thessalonians, the coming of the day of the Lord. Someone stated that, told them that the day of the Lord had actually come. And so they thought, okay, the, the coming of Jesus must be near. I mean, t- tribulation, it's cranking up. Uh, things are not getting easier for us. I mean, maybe the best thing we can do is just invest our time and spend our time uh, waiting for him. And so some in the church began to quit their jobs. You're to say, man, the best thing we can do is just worship and meet together as the people of God. And they became, you know, professional waiters or something. Uh, others, you know, continued to work, and they were left with the financial burden of carrying the church and helping those who were no longer working. And so if you can imagine this, it's only one year after Paul wrote the first letter. One year has gone by. And uh, things have changed within the church, and they're wondering, are we living in the midst of the tribulation and what is going on? And so Paul begins this letter with just those classic words of comfort that we see in so many of his letters. He says in verse 2, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." I mean, you know, those troubled those those words to a troubled spirit in my mind are like I mean, think of the context of what's going on with these guys. This is like, you know, stepping into a nice warm shower on it when you're chilled to the bone or it's like a cold glass of water when you're parched. Uh, with thirst from the heat. Grace and peace. Guys, here's Paul. Guys, I know that you are living in a time of tribulation, but I want to say to you, grace and peace. You know, were they living in the midst of the tribulation? Well, we know that the tribulation, as we talked about in First Thessalonians, as we've talked about it in other series, the tribulation is a time when God's wrath is poured out upon the earth, uh, upon the Christ-rejecting world. And to be reminded as a church that they, were, that they were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be reminded and, and have this grace of greeting from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to this crew was a, a fresh message that spoke to their hearts when they were confused and when they were frightened and when they were wondering what God was doing. And Paul reminded them first in the first verse there, their position, their position in the Lord. He said, you are in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminded them of God's intentions towards them. There's grace and peace to you from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did that mean the storm just disappeared with with the words? No, it didn't. But it meant that their perspective could change in the midst of the storm because they were reminded that Christ was present with them just like he was present with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. As the Gospels tell us, they were reminded that their position was secure, that their father who was in heaven was in total control and that he would not fail them. They were reminded, I think, of the blood of Jesus Christ, which had purchased them, that they were in the hand of God. I'm reminded as I think of these first couple of verses of the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do you, do you know you have a... You have a perfect father in heaven, a perfect father, you know we all have earthly fathers we, we love our earthly fathers we 're thankful for our earthly fathers, but we know something about our earthly fathers they 're not perfect they 're not perfect. you know they did the best with what they had, yeah, yeah, I see teenagers looking at their parents right now. Fathers are not perfect. But our Father in heaven is perfect. He is a perfect Father. And He loves you. And He doesn't want anything to separate you from His grace and from His presence. And so we know the gospel. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to free us from that which would separate us from Him, to to set us free from the power and punishment of sin. And Jesus gave his life on the cross and he died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And Jesus proclaimed this in John chapter 17. This is eternal life. That you would know the only true God in Jesus Christ. That they would know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, we we know the reality of the the gospel and what the gospel proclaims to us, that the gift of eternal life is given to us as we do something called repentance, which means we turn from our sin and we turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we receive position, receive standing in uh, our Father in heaven, in the kingdom of God. You know, just like the Thessalonians, we were once dead in our sin and by our very nature, objects of God's wrath. But the intentions of God changed towards us from that of us being objects of wrath to that of us being his children given the promise of a hope and a future. And so these words of grace and peace to the Thessalonian church were of of great comfort. You know, I think... Sometimes I wonder why people come to church. (laughs) You know, often, you know, you come, I think people come to church with the hope of finding peace. You know, maybe some people come here with the hope of, you know, being loved by people and experiencing, you know, for an hour and a half, some quietness in their soul and finding a little bit of rest and peace in their mind. But you have to understand that true peace comes from experiencing the grace that is extended to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't put the cart before the horse. It's grace and then peace in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in your search for peace, in your search to find peace, you must acknowledge your need for grace. Peace is not simply the result of connecting with some You know, impersonal spiritual force that seems to be present in the church, peace is the result of meeting with your Father who is in heaven and Him extending His grace to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God the Father is extremely personal and He desires to know you and He desires to be known by you. He wants to give His grace to us. And the result will be that we will experience peace, a peace that the Scripture tells us passes all understanding. Grace and peace come from God. They come from God for your salvation, uh, for your comfort, to free you from fear, to make you of sound mind, to help you in the midst of confusion. And so Paul just reminds this church of their standing in the Lord and these words of comfort before he gets into this discussion grace and peace to you and then he begins to give a personal word of thanksgiving for what he observed in their life check it out he says in verse three we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of one and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing as we saw last week at the end of his first letter to the thessalonians paul said this it's the will of god that god's people should always be thankful In everything, thankfulness to the Lord is always the right thing. Not not thankful necessarily for the circumstance, but thankful in the midst of the circumstance for what God is doing, for God's presence in what he's doing. And Paul assured this crew, uh, you know, he wants to assure them as he's about to have this discussion, he's going to just affirm them a little bit and what he says here is, "I'm obligated to do this to you. I, I'm obligated." And so here's some things I'm thankful for when I think of you, Thessalonian church, he says. First is this: their faith was growing abundantly. You know it's been said that a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And they were in the midst of a test. They were in the midst of suffering. They were in the midst of persecution. And, you know, I would say this to us. You should expect your faith to be tested. Anybody ever gone in a, in a test of faith right now? You should expect your faith to be tested. See, faith is like a muscle, and it, and it needs to be exercised so that it can grow. You know, I might ask you this. What, what is the step of faith that God is calling you to? You know, as you think about your life and what God is doing what is the step of faith that God is calling you to? For the Thessalonians, and often for us, tribulation and persecution and suffering are the means by which God tests our faith. Is it the real McCoy? You know, it's, it's easy to live a shallow Christian life. I think of the, the Hall of Heroes, that Hebrews chapter 11 that we read about those who suffered and faced tremendous obstacles so that their faith could grow in christ and 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 in what god was going to do and they did you know the question might be for us is how does faith grow well the word of god tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god intake of the word of god leads to a growing faith We learn to trust God at his word. Faith is that that conviction of truth regarding the things that God has promised. It's trusting God in the face of any circumstance. And so Paul said this, I can commend you. Uh, Your faith is growing abundantly. The second thing he said is this, your love for one another is increasing. You know, you would think that in the face of persecution and tribulation and suffering, that, that these individual Christians would just descend into the self-absorbed life, that they would descend into selfish, selfishness, that they would descend into that attitude of the mind where it's poor old me, and they're navel-gazing, and they forget about the church, and they forget about God's people, and they forget about everyone else because the whole world uh, revolves around them. But that wasn't what was happening. They were growing in their love for one another. You know, how can that be? Well, there's an equation in the kingdom of God, and it's this. When you put faith and suffering together, the result is you'll get love. You'll get love for other people. You know, I've so often observed that when other people are suffering and you go to visit them or you chat with them, something amazing always strikes me when they have faith in God. It's like you go to comfort them, and instead, they begin to minister to you. Have you ever experienced that? And it's like, what's going on here? You're the one who's sick. Uh, I came to be the encouragement to you, <laughs> to share with you, and now you're ministering to me. Because when someone is suffering and they combine it with faith, it just, love begins to ooze out of them. And And... It's not just optimism. It is a genuine love and concern for someone else when it is they themselves who are actually suffering. You ever seen that in someone? Well, that's what was going on in the Thessalonians. See, when a Christian suffers and in faith reaches upward towards God, there's an outer working of love that is produced in their life. Faith directed towards God and love directed towards other believers. Boy, that is a, that's a great balance in the Christian life. That's a great sign of growth. And that is, you know, I would say this, that's why a church that is suffering, the persecuted church, is a church that's always growing. I mean, you can look throughout the ages of, of history and all the different accounts and stories of the things that are going on the in the world. When the church is persecuted, It weeds out those who are not truly of the church, that are not truly of the kingdom of God. And then, as those who are left begin in faith to continue to look to God in the midst of persecution, there's incredible love that comes out of their lives. You know, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, faith and love marks of a healthy church. Verse four, check out verse four. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So we don't know the details. You know, Paul doesn't tell us. We don't know exactly what's going on. We just read what Paul says here that he could boast. He could boast about this crew. He could boast about this church, that they were steadfast. He could boast about their faith. He could boast about their love in the midst of all the things that they were facing and enduring and going through. But there's something conspicuously missing from the list of uh, affirmations that Paul gives to this church. Something that he had actually mentioned in the first letter. And I think the missing link, this, this missing piece is the key to this letter. I want you to turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there for a minute. Back a few pages in your Bible. And we'll read just a little bit of Paul's introduction in the first part of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 2. Another word of thanksgiving he gives for this church. He says this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope. Faith, hope, and love. The scripture tells us these three remain. The greatest of these is love. In that first letter, Paul commends them for all three, for the expression of all three of those things. But in this second letter, do you notice hope was left off the list. Faith, love, but something had disappeared from their lives. And I think this second letter, you know, Paul is looking to address the issue of hope. You know, without hope, the work of faith and the labor of love begin to get undermined. You know, in the face of suffering and persecution, when hope is lost, faith and love will soon be lost as well. The Thessalonians, you know, didn't know what they were hoping for any longer. You know, in the the first letter, at the end of every chapter, we saw Paul making reference to the hope of Christ's coming. And as confusion had slipped into the church, as some false teaching had slipped in there, as their understanding had been undermined, you know, they didn't know where they were going anymore. Are we living in the midst of the tribulation? Should we quit our jobs? Should we work? Should we do this? Is Jesus coming? They had lost all sense of where they were to direct their hope. They didn't know if they had missed the Christ return, some of them. They didn't understand if they had misunderstood some things. You know, they didn't know if they were. Dealing with tribulation or the great tribulation. And in regards to hope, I would say they lost their bearings. Check out verse 4 again. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are during. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So don't miss this. Uh, Paul is seeking to encourage a church that has lost its hope. And he says that that their endurance of faith in the face of persecution, their endurance in the face of suffering and in tribulation is evidence that God was still at work amongst them. See, to address the issue of hope, Paul's going to talk about persecution and going through suffering and going through tribulation, and the Christian attitude in the midst of that thing, and those things. You know, is it possible to to hang on and endure in the face of tribulation? Well, it's impossible unless there is a true inner working of God's Spirit in your heart and in your life. It is impossible to hang on in the midst of those things, Unless there is some sort of inner strength to keep you keeping on in the midst of the storm. And that inner strength, that working of the Holy Spirit was happening amongst the Thessalonian church. He says in verse five, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you also may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. See, the Thessalonians were enduring and Paul said, the proof is in the pudding, my friends. God is at work amongst you. That's the evidence. Some of you are suffering, you're enduring tribulation, and the fact that you are still trucking, the fact that you are still keeping on, keeping on in the midst of the storm is proof that God is at work in your life. You might ask, where's God? What's what's God doing? Will I ever see the end to this storm? Is there any reason to hope in the midst of this storm? mess, this pressure, this crushing that I'm feeling. Well, I would say this. Remember, God has not promised you ease. He's promised you his presence. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Is there reason to hope? Yes, there is. God is at work in the midst of the storm. You know, it seems to be in the very hardwiring of human thinking that we ask a lot of questions when life is not easy you know we 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 ask things and wonder you know i think we do this we associate ease with a sign of god's blessing you know ease as the sign of god's approval you know we think following jesus should be effortless We think that ease proves that God has found us worthy of his kingdom. You know, that's why often as Christians, we look at people, wicked people, and we say to ourselves, why do they have life so easy? How come they're not sick? How come they have so much money? You know, how come their kids seem okay? Hey, you know how? How come? You know they have no problems. You, you, you flip to the Psalms, and you see that discussion so often by the psalmist. He's like, "Why do the wicked prosper, man? What is going on? How come I'm suffering, and these wicked people are not?" See, we think that suffering proves that God does not care, when just the opposite is actually true. You got to flip the equation upside down. Paul is saying the fact that you are persecuted. The fact that you're experiencing this pressing, the fact that you are undergoing tribulation through all this stuff is proof that you are part of the kingdom of God. And the way that we act in those times, in those trials, proves to others that God is at work in our lives. You know, maybe you think, come on, on, who are you trying to kid? (laughs) My keeping on in the face of this trial is proving nothing. Who's it speaking to? What's it doing? And I would remind you of so many accounts in the scriptures. You know, have you not heard of the account of the Israelites escaping through the Red Sea as there appeared to be no hope? Do you not remember the story of Daniel being tossed into the lion's den and God closing their mouths? Have you not heard of the plotting of Haman? Haman? and how God used Queen Esther to save the people. See, in all those accounts, three of them, and there's so many more biblical accounts where God proved to those who were onlookers that he was at work in the midst of his people. He was at work in the midst of their lives, and they were not abandoned. And Paul, Paul, you know, just gives us something so awesome here, and it's this. He says, look, there's a day of reward coming. There's a day coming in which you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You know, the fact that that you can stand up in the midst of pressure is proof that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that you have been removed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son of God. And there are so many pressures against us in this life, isn't there, you know? I, I, I think I think of what it was like when I was a teenager. Think of our, you know, the peer pressure crushing you, you know? The pressure of culture trying to tell us what the rules are and what morality is. It's it's crushing. You know, we, we fight against the, the lures and the power of of sin. And all those things as we stand against those tides for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, just prove that we are children of God. You know, it doesn't mean that you won't drop the ball once in a while. But when you hold out against, you know, that practice of habitual sin, it's proof that God is at work in your life. When when you stand up and continue in faith to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the storm, it's proof you are a child of God. Some of you might ask, you know, well, then why am I always, you know, caving under the pressure? Why am I caving and participating in sin. And and I would say, you know, what you need to look at is, is, is sin a habitual thing in your life? Or is it something where you stumble once in a while? Those are two different things. Where it's a habitual practice that you tr- give yourself to and where you stumble into it. If it's habitual, then you need to take an honest look in the mirror and say, have I truly repented of my sin and turned to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If it's an area where you stumble, then you get back up on your feet and you keep trucking. See, repentance means to change your mind. Have you changed your mind about sin, and have you changed your mind about Jesus? Have you turned in repentance from sin to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is a repentance that leads to salvation. To turn your back on sin and to turn your face to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a battle to live for Jesus, isn't it? We're hard-pressed, Paul says in another place, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not destroyed. But the day will come when you are counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And Paul says, you will be rewarded. Amen? Look at verse 5 again. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you're being considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, what Paul is saying is this. God is just. And God will not fail you. God will see that his justice is served. You might say, yeah, but, but God, I'm suffering. Well, God would say to you, I'm going to give you rest. You might say to God, but God, the wicked have it easy. And God says to you, their recompense will be affliction. You might ask, well, when, God? When do the ba- When do the scales get balanced? And Paul tells us, it's when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. See, that's our hope, his coming. That is our hope. See, God is going to pay back trouble on those who trouble you. You remember Pharaoh? He tried to drown those Israelite baby boys and God led his descendant into the waters of the Red Sea along with his army and God drowned him. You remember those governors and leaders who plotted against Daniel they'd schemed against the king. And when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, God closed the mouths of the lions and he turned it, the story on them. And those men were thrown into the lion's den. And the scripture tells us before their bodies touched the floor of that den, the lions pounced upon them and crushed their bones. You remember the story of Haman? He plotted to kill the Jews and he built a gallows to hang Mordecai. And he himself hung on the gallows, and his sons died with him. Or, you know, you think of the story of Jesus, those who were against him, who said, it's better for one man to die at the hands of the Romans than for our whole city to perish. Well, within a generation, the legions of Rome came, and they tore down stone upon stone of the city of Jerusalem as they surrounded it, and the words of the Lord Jesus were fulfilled. See, Abraham stood... In the mountains of Judea, and he looked down into the city of Sodom, and he said this, Will not the Lord be just? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the Lord says, It's mine to repay. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God will balance the scales at the coming of Jesus Christ. So what of the wicked, Christ-rejecting world? Well, look where Paul goes here says in verse 9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. What is the future for those who are lost, for those who are blind, for those who are dead in their sin? For those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal judgment. Sober words. They will be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. I mean, this is exclusion, you know, banishment, eternal separation. What it is not, it is not annihilation. You notice that? You know, many of these days are preaching annihilation, that God will simply just snuff you out of existence from eternity like one snuffs out a candle. Uh, You have to read a lot into what we just read to come up with that conclusion. It's it's unbiblical. This is an everlasting destruction or ruin. Look, you know, hell is no joke. It is. It is not a place where you eternally party with your friends. It's a place of everlasting destruction and and ruin. Say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Actually, out of everyone in the New Testament, Jesus taught more about hell than everyone else. It's not a party place. You know, C.S. Lewis said, in hell, everyone will be at an infinite. Distance from everyone else. I mean, I I like his description because it describes hell really in this sense as a place of unparalleled loneliness, emptiness, where you never feel the presence of God and you never experience the presence of another human being. I mean, annihilation would just be a picnic compared to the realities of what Paul's talking about here. You know, you'd give anything to have annihilation over hell. It is continual emotional anguish, physical anguish, spiritual anguish, relational anguish, and it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a terrible place, isn't it? It's sobering, but it is a reality. And what is the terrible thing that someone must do to deserve that terrible judgment? It's this simple, to turn your back on that free gift of grace that God extends to you through his son, Jesus Christ. To reject Jesus. See, to reject Jesus is to choose yourself over God. Hell is a self-imposed sentence where God gives you exactly what you wanted, freedom from his presence. 100% freedom from the presence of God. 100% freedom from eternal life in a place of everlasting darkness where the worm does not die and where the fire cannot be quenched. And it's not that God is being mean or cruel, it's nothing to do with that. It's him carrying out justice. As Abraham said, will not the Lord of all the earth be just? And people don't like to hear about the reality of this. I mean, it, 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 it's sobering, it can be uncomfortable. But I really think the reason why people don't like to hear about hell is this, is because it forces them to face the reality of their sin and their separation from God. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that because they would rather enjoy the pleasure of sin than come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal destruction or eternal life. That's what the scripture lays before us. And it comes down to a decision for Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should have that gift of eternal life. Now, for those who know Christ, Paul says this. Verse 11. To this end, we will always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, Paul began to pray for this church that had lost sense of their hope. He talked about their persecution and he reminded them, God will even the scales. That you are enduring is proof that God's hand is upon your life. And then he began to pray. He prayed that they would be worthy of the kingdom when they entered into eternity. You know, not worthy in the sense that they could somehow by their own efforts or works, you know, earn their way into the kingdom of God Not that sense of worthiness, because you can never do that. You can never work your way into the kingdom of God. But worthy in the sense that they might try to live up to that which God has called them to. They were going through trials. But trials don't make the person. Trials reveal what a person is made of. And so Paul said this, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering... May God make you worthy of the calling that you have received. He he prayed for them that that they may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. God's power. That their character would be Christ-centered. And that it would begin to affect their conduct. Paul prayed for the church that that they would have the kind of resolute will that that it would lead them to to walk in obedience to the will of God in their spirits, in their moral character, in their lives, that they would walk in obedience to God. Not not by human strength, but by the power of God. That word power there is, is that word dunamis. It's dynamite. It is the power of God, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. May you walk in it so as to live for the will of God. He prayed for the church that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them and they in him. Look, Jesus will be glorified in his church. He is the head. Jesus will be glorified in our lives when he returns, but we also want him glorified in our lives today, here and now. We want to live in such a way so that, His name is glorified, and it all happens by grace. You see that at the end of that verse? According to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the very place where Paul started. He reminded them of their position. He reminded them of their calling. And as he talked about their tribulations and their persecutions, and with that sense of, Of them losing hope, he reminded them, God will be just. And it all happens when Jesus comes. We have a hope. Your hope is this, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is this, have you settled eternity? Eternal destruction or eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question. This is a sober reality that is a result of the justice of God. But eternal life is a wonderful reality that is a result of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, a gift that he offers to you. But you must turn from your sin, from the self-dependent life in repentance, and in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Jesus-centered life. Decision before you, if you haven't made it, you need to make it. It's serious. Stand with me this morning.